What's going on, my friends? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and hopefully one day a true proletarian revolution. Um, And today we're going to talk about why and how uh, we have gotten to a point where those of us who are supporters or are uh, preponderates, I guess you would say, of Marxism, of scientific socialism, why it is that we feel a proletarian revolution is necessary. But I've already discussed on my show why it is that the violence of a proletarian revolution is found to be necessary. But today, I want to talk about why, historically, we have found that this method, proletarian revolution, is what will bring us to the next stage of development, which many before me have called scientific socialism. Now, this is somewhat of a, I don't want to say abstract concept, because in fact, scientific socialism is quite the opposite of an abstract ideology. But when discussing things like proletarian revolutions, like history, many of us get kind of caught up in either a somewhat romanticized idea of what such a movement, such a process should or would be like. I think also it is difficult because a lot of us come from uh, and only have ever lived in capitalist uh, states. And many of us also have lived in colonized or imperialized countries. So it's very difficult to imagine, oftentimes, a world such as this where people come together under the same banner for the same cause, put their efforts together and work with each other, in order to build something better for all of them. That's an incredible uh, and difficult idea to really conceptualize. Many people find that the human nature is in fact greed and selfishness. Many people believe to their core, whether it's because of sin or whether it's because of just pure uh, materialism and idealism, very few people tend to do things for other people. Very few people care about other people. And there's a lot to say about this. Um, But it is false in the sense that human nature in its bare, naked, and pure form 
would or could be greed and selfishness. And this is where history comes in. And this is why I want to talk to you folks about the revolutionary necessity of historical understanding. If we look historically at human development, we would know almost on first glance that selfishness and greed are in fact the opposite of human nature. And I say this for a few reasons. First and foremost, when looking historically, there is a period of time in human development that is commonly referred to as early communalism. Now, early communalism was a period in time almost uh, one of the earliest formations of a human society. And the reason why they're referred to as uh, early communalist societies is because in those societies, it was the community, it was the group of people within society who came together in order to form and govern said society. Now, this is not just because these people were amazing angels on earth and they were just such better people than us and we're all assholes and pieces of shit that'll never get better. No. If we know one thing about human development, it is people, just like everything else in our societies, just like everything else in the world, are a reflection of their environment. Now, this is not to say that society just is this horrible and therefore we are going to continue being this horrible and society was just for some reason, somehow, that much better before. If we take this perspective, if we take this view, then it leaves us with ultimately no strategy. It leaves us with no ability to act or affect our own history. Now, this much is commonly accepted uh, by a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Again, some people believe human nature is just evil. Some people believe that corporations are evil and have no interest in stopping before... They kill all of us. Some people think that we are just on a track to our own demise and we just can't really do much about it because we're powerless and the people who are in charge and are abusing us and the earth are the powerful. Now this much I can understand. I've been here. I sit in this place moderately frequently. Um, Looking out into the world that we live in, uh, it's very difficult to have hope. It's very difficult to expect that things can change when they have been so awful for so many for so long. But again, this is why history is important. Because if we know anything, it is that nothing stays the same. 
Nothing has ever stayed the same. Even when it looks like it's staying the same, there are internal contradictions and conflicts which are leading towards its continuous and non-stopping reformation. This much is simply understood by just looking at the way in which politics go. I mean, even though our system looks the same, it's incredibly different. Not because there are some progressive uh, forces which are intending to truly change the system itself, but because there's different players, the historical time period has changed, our interests as a nation and the interests of those internal powers of the nation are constantly changing, constantly coming into contradiction with one another, and constantly trying to work out an organized form where they can continue to stay in power. This does not mean that every time someone gets into government office, they check off a checklist and boom, you're a part of the ruling class because you believe in A, B, C, or D. But in fact, the ruling class is actively formed on a day-to-day basis through a disciplined effort of those in power to stay in power. This might seem a bit confusing, but what it really means is that those up top will do anything to try to stay up top. And those who are underneath them will try to do anything they can to get to the top. But why? Why do we have a need for one group to be in power over another? Again, this is where history comes in. If we know anything about early communalist societies, then we know that eventually they came to a close. Now, it's impossible, impossible, and we need to stop as a people uh, trying to analyze history in this way. It's impossible to pinpoint a event or a moment or a person or a thing that caused the end to that system. From the very day that that system was born, that that system started being acted upon, it was bearing the fruit of its own demise. Again, inside of the very power structure that existed were internal contradictions. Eventually, you get the development quite early into small agricultural farming. This was what slowly but surely broke us away from what is constantly referred to as a hunter-gatherer system. We now kept land. We built homes. We did not necessarily move as often as we once did, although in a lot of indigenous communities, even through early agricultural uh, time periods, they were more mobile than us, allowing for, and, and by us I mean Western, European, and, and those groups um, developing those places. But indigenous communities in North America, in Latin America, in Africa, they spent a good portion of their time actually following animals, following the natural migration patterns, um, 
However, doing so in a different way. It was more uh, domesticated. They had different forms uh, and different modes of production. They were developing and creating things for different interests. And now this is a development that occurs fluidly, right? It's not, okay, this group was in power, but then everybody didn't like what they were doing, so then they turned to this guy or this girl or this person or these people and said, okay, we want you to be in charge now. No, that's not how, I mean, that's just plainly not how these things work. History develops in a more scientific and dialectical fashion then we usually have a framework of understanding. And again, this is why some of these conversations become a bit abstract. Not because they are abstracted and idealized, but because so few of us spend time or are taught thinking thought, thinking about these things, analyzing our history, analyzing our present. These things occur slowly but surely through different processes through different small contradictions which lead towards the need for small but increasing changes we also see this in the shift from early individual agriculture to early slave societies from this transition to individual agriculture to slave societies, there was a shift. The mode of production changed. Now it was not enough to simply produce an amount which could fulfill yourself on a, sub- a sustenance basis on a day-to-day life. Now, farming was a mode of production, not just simply for consumption, but also for exchange and distribution. The early slave societies began producing a surplus, and this surplus began either being simply feasted upon by those who were wealthy enough to own slaves, because again, if you have slaves, You have to have slave owners. So the slave owners were those who would benefit from the surplus. Now, okay, this is a point where we commonly hear, well, it wasn't so bad for everyone. In Greek and Roman times, if you were a slave, you were a subhuman. We know a bit about this here in the United States because of our historical practice of chattel slavery. But historical slave societies created an entire society surrounding the mode of production of slavery. This took its different forms throughout history, throughout different epochs. During the early Greek and Roman societies, the slaves were given no rights. The slaves had 
no participation in politics or in society or in economics. And everything they did was for the benefit of their masters. Now, this is going to create quite the contradiction, right? I mean, if you have slave owners and you have slaves, you have a power structure there. You have a group which is in charge and sits above the other group. You have what we call a class society. Now, slave societies were not the originator of class society. We would have to look at early individual agriculture to find that development. But slave societies are probably the easiest place to begin to understand what class society means. Of course, there was a ruling class, the slave owners. The, uh, and again, you know, this doesn't mean every single wealthy person was a slave owner. Sure, can we say some guys didn't own slaves? Yeah, but did they do anything about the people who did own slaves? No. So again, doesn't really matter. Um, speaking historically, it is a early slave society, period. Meaning through historical analysis, we can come to the conclusion that the mode of production of that period of time was slave labor. That is what produced the surpluses for the society. Those surpluses, again, did not benefit nor go to the individuals who produced them. They did not go into the pockets or into the mouths or onto the backs or into homes for the slaves, for those whose labor produced that value. How is this so? How is it so that a group of people can abuse and use another group of people in such a way? Well, it is through force. Now, force is a difficult conversation in and of itself because like many terms like it, it takes different forms. Now, force is not always physical or violent, but force is a constant threat of physical violence. I can say so because look at what happens in the early slave societies when you have different rebellions and revolts. There is a reaction. There is a force, a power, which is cultivated and organized above the slaves. And when the slaves the majority of society revolt. That power is capable of placing those revolting back into their oppressed position. This is a force of a ruling class. Now, I cannot say necessarily why always um, due to my own lack of, you know, historical study of, say, Greek and Roman societies, but one could say that it is because almost every single male 
within these societies was taught from almost birth how to be a soldier. In this case, if slaves were not taught the same, if slaves were not given the same abilities, if slaves did not have available them uh, the skills and the tools, the weapons to be violent, then it is those in control of those means who can use those means to keep themselves within the powerful dominant position. But does this mean once a slave revolt happens and they're beaten down and and reshackled and resent to work? No. Because here's the thing. Once a people, once an oppressed group get a taste, even a sniff or a, a, a whisper of what freedom could be like, what liberation could be like, they will never stop fighting. This much is true for the indigenous peoples, for the people of the global south who have been oppressed, colonized, exploited for centuries, five, six, seven hundred years. They have not given up fighting and they will not give up fighting because this is the very historical structure of every single different form of class society during the slave societies. Eventually, the slaves won out. They overcame the ruling class. They instilled and developed a new society. They began to develop what is called feudal societies. Now, there's a lot of time period in between the early and, I should say, the earliest known slave societies and the earliest known feudal societies. The feudal societies really only changed again in form, not in essence. Now, rather than having slave owners and slaves, you have kings, queens, and subjects. You have nobility and plebeians. You have also landlords and serfs. Landlords, as the name would convey, are the lords of the land. They would own their home and something like what we might conceive as a plantation of sorts. And they would allow... Oh, how kind of them, right? They would allow serfs to stay on their land in exchange for the majority, if not all, of their harvest from that land. They would have to work in the home of the landlord, doing whatever it is that they required of them. They would have to produce goods for the landlord. And they would have to farm and grow food 
for the landlord. Again, a very clear and organized ruling class. You can look at who owns the land, who are the people in charge of the politics, who decides the laws. These are the ruling class. Who is in charge of the current mode of production? Who tells who to go to work? That is the ruling class. But again, there are so many internal contradictions from the day that feudalism really comes into its own on earth. There is internal contradictions. I mean, how do you have a relationship between a landlord, an oppressor, an exploiter, and a serf? How do you have a relationship like that without having contradictions? It is impossible. So what history gives us in this sense, the tool that history provides us, is an analytical one. It is a scientific one. Because as we know, there are your utopian socialisms, your utopian understanding of history, which we do in many different ways. We analyze history through what we call the great man theory, uh, trying to say that these individuals or these individual events are what truly led to the change rather than the evolutionary and dialectical progression to the point which came to the fore, which contradicted and heightened and intensified into that individual or individual event. And even those individual events, such as, say, the Russian Revolution or the Paris Commune or the Chinese Revolution, even what we are commonly referred to or what is commonly referred to as insurrections is not plainly an insurrection, but oftentimes an insurrection and then a civil war of sorts. This is not an individual event. This is not a spontaneous eruption of action. This is a fluid and constant contradiction between non-amalgamous forces. I mean, again, the ruling class of no society was one type of person or one individual group. The ruling classes of class society have always been made up of multiple parties, of multiple individuals. It has never once been a single group which can cultivate and, and uh, claim to be the sole rulers of that society. It's just ahistorical. It's not true. So if we know this, then we know also the same about the working and oppressed class. It is a fluid progression of growth. Many before me in their analysis of history have shown that over time, the ruling class, through its own natural progression and internal contradictions, eventually begins throwing one could say, other members of the ruling class down into the ranks of the working and oppressed class. This is done today through things like mergers, buyouts, um, military occupation, uh, 
coup d'etats, regime change, etc. It is also done through, again, a natural progression of capitalism. These things that happen, these mergers, these occupations, are not because certain individuals are assholes. It's not because certain individuals decided that they want to be in power, so they did everything that they could to get into power. There are very few pull-themselves-up-by-their-bootstraps rulers. That's true throughout history. So today, when we try to understand why these things happen, what influences these things, we need a historical lens. But we also need a Marxist lens. Now, Marxism grabs onto and uses the incredible knowledge and analysis that history, dialectics, the law of contradiction, and the scientific understanding of the mode of production. And it uses all of these tools, all of these analytical tools, to be able to come not just to a great idea or a broad and vague understanding of a concept or a period of time, but a truly scientific analysis of not only the the historical period of time, but also those members, those classes who were alive and progressing in that historical time period. Understanding history, understanding economics, understanding political and social contradictions, we begin to understand more clearly how class and how class analysis, understanding which members of society are a part of which class and understanding which classes will work together to create or cultivate uh, power amongst themselves. This is what class analysis allows us to do. And this, again, requires not only a historical knowledge, but also an economic political, social, and scientific knowledge. And I use the word scientific not to mean, oh, you're going to get, you know, two, um, uh, uh, what the hell are they called? The fucking dishes that they use in science, not Petri dishes, but the the ones they put the chemicals in. Fucking goddammit. The word is beakers and I'm an idiot. Um, It's not like, you know, I'm saying we're going to get two beakers together. We're going to mix ruling class and working class and there's going to be a reaction. But ultimately, even though we're not doing it in a lab, even though we're not doing it with beakers, that is the, the analysis. That is what we're trying to understand. We're trying to look at in this given environment with these forces, with these different classes, with these different modes of production, What is going to lead to what? How are these powers within a given environment with their internal contradictions, with their form and with the essence of that environment, how is it that they are going to move forward? How will history develop? And that is where the theories of class struggle come from, that through the internal contradictions of a given environment and society, it is impossible for the different 
groups within that society to not come into contradiction with one another. And if there is, as there always has been since the onset of clad society, a ruling class which is in charge and ruling over an oppressed and working class, then that contradiction oftentimes will be between the forces which are trying to battle for the power spot to be the new ruling class. But again here, we must look at both form and essence. The essence of class society for thousands of years has been the exploitation of the many, of the surplus value and labor of the oppressed and working class for the benefit of the ruling class. Once we have made our way into the capitalist society, the essence of that mode of production is profits. The goal of the mode of production, of distribution, of consumption, of the ruling class within a capitalist society is capitalist profit, is surplus value, is the accumulation and the appropriation of all the surplus goods and value that the working and oppressed classes, the majority, create. That is the goal of a capitalist ruling class in a class society. But here's the deal. History, right, has shown us uh, that things don't always stay the same, right? So a class society, let me say this so that words are understood. A class society creates what are called class antagonisms. That, uh, that's the contradictions between the rich and poor, the ruling class and the working class. Those are what are referred to as class antagonisms. The differences and the contradictions between different classes within a given class society. So what then is the goal of scientific socialism? Well, as is said in its very name, it is a socialism which intends to proceed in a scientific manner in opposition to early French and English and German utopian socialisms, which got a lot of uh, popularity in the late 17 to 1800s. Um, but by the time that Marx and Engels began studying socialism, began studying capitalism, began studying economics and politics and social issues, they began to see that these socialisms from folks like St. Simone, Foyer, uh, Robert Owen, and many others who were incredibly popular at their time, they were not based on the material reality we existed in. They intended to create a utopia, but a utopia which used zero parts of the society we live in other than the people themselves. Now, again, history, although not forming itself out of no change by the people themselves, but history develops in its own way. Not because 
we the people are so powerful and all-knowing that we get to decide how society goes and so therefore the people who are in charge are just these awful evil assholes who have taken their own selfish greed and used it to change society to make sure that they're in charge. No. Although these individuals might be evil, greedy assholes, they're also only a part of the problem. And they are only the kind of uh, body that has been chosen for this period of time. Because prior to the Elon Musks and Jeff Bezoses, there was the Rockefellers and the J.P. Morgans. And before them, there was many. And before them, there were many kings and queens. And before there were many kings and queens, there were slave owners. And before there were many slave owners, there were individual agricultural producers. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that eventually there will be a force large enough, strong enough, oppressed enough, angry enough to end this system. And I don't just mean end capitalism, although this will have to be our first fell swoop. What I mean is that we plainly cannot continue such a society to go on. This society is killing people, killing lots of people, and killing lots of people for the benefit of a very few people. Now that can't go on for much longer. Not because I say so, but because the people themselves will not allow it to. Look at what's happening in the supposed, quote, pink tide across Latin America, Asia, and Africa. It cannot be denied that here we see an extremely large population of oppressed people saying, we will not be oppressed anymore. I don't care who the fuck you are. I don't care if you're the US. I don't care if you're the IMF. I don't care if you're the World Bank. I don't care if you're Nike, Amazon, or Walmart. And I don't care if you're our national bourgeoisie, our social democrats, our uh, conservatives and liberals. We want the people in charge. This is what's happening across the world. Marx and Engels said, this is going to happen. They said, it is destined to, not, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) not in a deterministic fashion, Excuse me again. (coughs) Not to just say that, oh, well, because I said so and because I'm so smart and because I wrote it in this book, I think the poor and oppressed people are going to rise up and overthrow the (coughs) the ruling class. As we've been talking about this whole time, Marx and Engels and their their ideology, their strategy, was a scientific one. They understood, as any person with common sense would, and excuse me, I'm swinging this door open for my job, it's going to be loud. Oh, it really wasn't. Cool. Um, We know, as well as anyone else knows, because we are living and we are paying attention, that, again, 
Oppressed people will only stay oppressed for so long. They will not allow themselves to be dehumanized, to be abused, to be exploited, and to be uh, threatened with physical violence, whether through starvation, whether through military occupation, whether through a lack of any jobs or affordable housing. These are all forms of violence that the working class has to live in every single day. How, how can we logically expect that this society, as it is today, can continue the way that it it exists or has existed? I feel we would be foolish to believe in such a continuation. I feel that it is quite clear and becoming ever more clearer that the people will not allow such a thing to happen. But again, we cannot be foolish. We cannot expect that such a thing will just come, will just happen, that an individual or a group will come along and they themselves will be the glorious saviors, the geniuses and the emancipators. Individuals and individual groups are those who have the ability, opportunity, knowledge, and want to change history. They are not magnificent uh, beings of pure good. And so when we have uh, socialists, communists, who make mistakes, who do awful things, who fail the people in some sense of the word. This is not because, A, um, socialists or communists or anarchists or whomever are just inherently bad people, and so therefore they are just incapable of actually accomplishing good. And it is not the opposite that everything a socialist or communist person or a group does is not purely good or uh, amazing, honestly, by any means. But the difference is quite plainly that one system, capitalism, works through its very internal nature to better the lives of the few property owners, wealthy and powerful military powers, whereas socialism, a system based on, as the name gives, the socialization of not only the labor force, but of also society as a whole, intends through its very principles to create a world, to create a mode of production, to create a society, an ideology, and a world which intends to better the many.
This is a very critical difference. So we must understand when analyzing really existing socialist countries that if mistakes are made, if capitalism seeps its way in, if individuals act horribly upon people, this has nothing to do with socialism. This has everything to do with individuals. But those individuals are a part of the process. They are not at the reins. They do not control society by themselves. They try to. They try to put chains on us. They try to keep things the same. And they try to make sure that things always go their way, that their interests are always the ones being served. But they are not in control of society if we do not let them be. We, as the people of the world, have been conditioned through a constant environment and experience of exploitation. This has created a sense of what Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism, where we believe we are being realistic, as in we are not ignoring the material reality in front of us and are not using any biases or any fill-in-the-blank ideas to try to conceive of the world in an unrealistic way. We believe, due to capitalist realism, that nothing will ever change. That capitalism is truly the end of history. Whether we believe that so clearly and in such words is not necessarily what is important here. What is important is that we, all across the world, in different places in the world, but especially in the West, have given up. We have decided that we have reached an end. And we have become nihilistic about it, believing it is what it is, that the world needs a cleanse, that there's nothing, not a single thing that anyone can do to stop the impeding march into our own death into the destruction of the earth. But how can we say so? How can we have so little hope while living in a time period of one of the world's largest in history, mass movements, mass protests in India of almost 200 million people? How can we be so hopeless while the people of Latin America, Africa, and Asia continuously, every single month, week, year, are rising up, are demonstrating, are going out into the streets, are having national liberation struggles, are fighting for socialism, are organizing themselves to fight imperialism. How can we be so hopeless 
to think that in a day and age such as this, that nothing can change. How is it that we can think we have hit some special period of human development where somehow, some way, things won't change? As we've discussed already, things have never stayed the same. Why is it today we feel that this is not true? Why is it today that we feel it is in fact impossible for things to change? I will tell you why. It is because they have convinced us so. It is because they have determined for us that we are in fact damned. We are doomed to suffering. And that would be quite, quite useful for them to have us believe, would it not? And now I feel sometimes when discussing these things, people assume I am speaking conspiratorially. They assume that in fact, I'm crazy. Oh, oh, these people... Oh, these people aren't conspiring against you. You're crazy. You're insane. You don't know what you're talking about. This is a thing that a lot of leftists of all stripes, and I'm starting to not like that word, but leftists of all stripes have to endure some form of this person's crazy. I mean, look at, I mean, those of you who listen to my podcast, there's a chance that you grew up in America or at least grew up in the West. Look at the difference between the way you viewed the world and were taught to view the world up until the point that you decided to think critically about that world. That is the difference which many people face when trying to discuss these things. So a lot of us have to deal with a lot of bullshit. We have to deal with a lot of arguments. And we have to deal with a lot of people basically treating us like we're fucking insane. Or treating us like the shit that we're talking about is annoying and is pessimistic and is bringing them down. Well, you know what's really bringing people down? Um, Them being worked to death in sweatshops for 30 cents a day. Military occupations. uh, A pandemic which the capitalist and imperialist powers have no interest in stopping. Some of these things kind of bring people down, guys. So if these discussions are hard to have, imagine living in the situations that we're discussing. The time has come for these things to change. And a scientific approach, one that has a concrete analysis of concrete conditions, is the only approach that will achieve for the people what the people need. And the only way that this can be done, the only truly scientific way of doing this is by having the proletariat, the working class, the oppressed peoples, the many, the majority, the very laborers and builders of the society that we live in rising up together under the same banner calling for revolution, calling for scientific socialism. 
and calling for rather than the oppressive class society structure of the few over the many through a very revolutionary act to put an end to class society, to erase class antagonisms, to build, to uh, fill in the gap between rich and poor, powerful and powerless, to solve the woes and inefficiencies, inequalities, and, and oppression that exists in the world today. They know that they have to do this through a scientific socialist process, which will take generations, which be, will be led by the working people themselves, organized in coalition to become the new form with a new essence to build for everyone of power. The people themselves will administrate and govern themselves, and we will build a society that is meant for the many to rule over the few until finally there is no reason, no need for anyone to rule over anyone. This is what scientific socialism uh, proposes to be able to do, and this is what uh, the revolutions in Paris in 1871, in Russia in 1917, and in China in 1949, and again with the Great People's Cultural Revolution that show us precisely that although scientific socialism is a process, has its faults and its mistakes, in its essence, it is intended to be better for the many instead of the few, and that much is 10 times better than what capitalism does and is a process that will lead us if we continue to build it towards a better tomorrow and an end to the oppression of anyone. If you are still listening, thank you so very much. I appreciate you. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Please, if you would like to follow me on social media, on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you would like to, you can reach out to me by DMing me there. Or you can email me at indefensiveliberation at gmail.com. There's no caps or spaces. And if you like this, but you would rather read it in written form, you can find my blog on my website at forliberation, again, no caps, no spaces, dot wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E, dot com forward slash website. Thank you so much, folks. And remember, long live scientific socialism, long live Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, and long live the people's struggle. Have a great day. Stay safe and stay revolutionary. Bye now.